The United Nations has urged rival military factions fighting in Sudan to stick to their latest truce to prevent a humanitarian disaster. A ceasefire has been extended for 72 hours, but it's failed to stop the clashes. The UN Secretary General is sending a special envoy to Sudan to coordinate humanitarian operations there. Fighting has entered its third week. Airstrikes continue to pound Sudan's capital, Khartoum, despite the truce aimed at allowing civilians to flee. The army said it was attacking the city to flush out its paramilitary rivals, the Rapid Support Forces. More than 500 deaths have been reported, with the true number of casualties believed to be much higher. Millions more remain trapped in Khartoum. The first major aid flight laden with medical supplies has arrived in the country. The International Committee of the Red Cross says a plane landed at Port Sudan with eight tons of relief supplies, including health kits for hospitals. Joining me now to discuss the humanitarian side to this conflict is Craig, Craig Redmond, the chief executive of aid organization Relief International. Um, Craig, what is the current humanitarian situation there? Uh, the, the situation is grave indeed. We're very, very worried about the supplies that you just referenced. We're worried about the supply chain. Uh, we're worried about that being broken. Um, yes, there is a truce somewhat, a ceasefire somewhat, but everyone is talking about the fact that fighting continues and you talked about the shelling, the fact that's happening in Khartoum. So we're worried about keeping that supply of medical equipment. Relief International does medical clinics all over the country. We have 45 of them across the country. So we're worried about running out of supplies in those facilities. Is the ceasefire making it easier for humanitarian workers? Yes and no. Uh, yes, in that when there is truly a ceasefire and it feels like uh, it's safe to do so, team members, community members, so forth, are able to go out and get the food that they need and so forth. In our case, able to go get supplies and so forth and, and go to the clinics where we work. But very quickly, that gets shot down when, you know, there is, uh, we, you hear weaponry or shelling or so forth. So it creates a situation where you're very unsure about what's going to happen next. Your organization has been in Sudan since 2006, I believe, but to some sad news, you lost a worker. It must be a very di distressing time for you. Thank you very much. Yes, we, we lost our dear colleague, uh, Ibrahim Suleiman. We lost him uh, a couple of weeks ago, early on in El Fashar in North Darfur. Uh, as we mourn his loss, uh, even though all of our colleagues there continue to go to those clinics, you know, of the 14 of them that we run, 12 are still open and operating. So. We feel that that's the best possible way to honor him. What is the best way to keep staff safe in a country like Sudan at the moment? Well, as some staff have left, uh, uh, we don't have any international team members left in the country. We managed to get them all out. Other team members are using their networks, uh, leaving major towns that are that are experiencing most of the of the conflict and finding safe spaces. So. We're in regular communication with everybody. Obviously, we have a communication tree that we use, a network uh, to, to keep tabs on everyone. And when it's safe to work, they do it every day. And when it's not, they, they hibernate in place and they stay safe. From what you can gather, how are aid stocks across the country? How are you? I'm sorry? How, how is aid uh, across the country? Where are levels of stock at the moment? What's needed and, and, and what do you have good supply of? Yeah, you made reference to the to the goods coming into Port Sudan. We just ourselves managed to get some medical supplies across the other border from Chad into El Fasher into to service those uh, clinics there. Um, so while we can, and while those pipelines are somewhat open, 
we're trying to get as much equipment and goods and services and so forth into the into Sudan. Um, we expect those to shut down. So right now, our worry is what's going to happen to food supplies, what's going to happen to med medical supplies over time. So what are your big predictions then in terms of both aid stock, as you're suggesting, and also in terms of the refugee crisis? Well, uh, um, it's hard to say what's going to happen. Uh, uh, we're all reading the same kinds of things and talking to everyone we can about that. Um, most people are predicting larger numbers of displaced population internally and across borders. Uh, a conflict like that would also suggest food supplies would run low as well as medical supplies. So we're trying to work and, you know, be ready for that eventuality. All right, Craig Redman from Relief International, thank you very much for joining us here on BBC News with the latest there on the humanitarian situation in Sudan. Thank you. Now, as uh, Craig and I were mentioning, there thousands of people are still trying to get out of Sudan. Our Africa correspondent, Andrew Harding, has been speaking to some of them in Port Sudan. We're crossing the Red Sea, heading towards the coast of Sudan. A nighttime rescue mission organized by Saudi Arabia's Navy. It's not quite Dunkirk, but many warships and ferries are now involved in this giant evacuation. Tight security as the lights of Port Sudan gleam on the horizon. We head to shore on a smaller tugboat, to the edge of a country consumed by conflict. We are just coming in now to Port Sudan. It's a huge place and a big city. Um, it is the focal point now of the evacuation effort for the whole country. We're told the area around it has been secured for now. On Sudanese soil and long after midnight, a small crowd has been selected from the thousands still waiting here. Nepalese, Bangladeshis, Pakistanis. How are you feeling tonight? Uh, a bit relieved, uh, finally on the way home. Yeah. It's been a long journey? Um, yeah, from Khartoum and then I was staying here, so yeah, it's been a long way from A lot home. of people still waiting, yeah? Yes. Most of these men have lived in Sudan for years. For Muhammad Ali, a university engineer, this is, this was, home. My everything is here, my home, my car, my children, they're born here, they studied here, so... You have to leave it all behind? Yes. I have a lot of memories with Sudan. I work here 13 years. You look so exhausted. This is why thousands of foreigners and Sudanese have been heading here to Port Sudan for this moment when they leave Sudanese soil to head on to boats and ships, this flotilla of vessels to take them across the Red Sea to safety. It's a, a moment of relief for these people but also for the Sudanese, a very bittersweet moment because many wonder if they will ever come back. A tugboat ride out of Port Sudan. Mohammed soon chokes up. Others seem lost in their thoughts. Out to sea, the waves are much bigger now, which means one last nerve-wracking ordeal clambering onto a Saudi Arabian warship, one by one. On their way out of Khartoum almost a week ago now, Mohammed and his colleagues were robbed at knife point, losing the few possessions they tried to salvage from the conflict. I have mobile, some money, and my laptop was with me. 
So you're here just with your clothes? Yes, yes, just the clothes. Now, within moments of finding safety, they're all fast asleep. Andrew Harding, BBC News, Port Sudan. And British nationals trying to escape the fighting there in Sudan have been given notice of an extra rescue flight, which is due to leave later on Monday. Those who are eligible will have to travel to Port Sudan. Previously, RAF planes have been taking off from an airstrip near the capital Khartoum as part of an operation launched last week.